Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is the eve of Bastille Day. And normally we would not be celebrating this or marking it, but John is going on his holidays to France next week. Exactly. He's going on his holidays to France next week. And of course, France is in the news. So this podcast is going to be another one in our series of our European trips around Europe. And uh, particularly because, A, we've got Bastille Day tomorrow, but also because France is in turmoil. We're going to talk about France. It'll going to be in more turmoil when John arrives next Tuesday afternoon. Well, I tell you what, I was in turmoil last night. I swear to God, I had a dream about my holiday because clearly I'm looking forward to it. But in my dream, I was driving around in a small little, I think it's one of those bubble cars. But Prigozhin was beside me with, a big, with okay. a big grumpy head in him, right. just looking at me. And then, you know, another part of the dream, like it was all disconnected. Prigozhin was at the end of the table. In his flak jacket. In his flak jacket, big grumpy head in him, big looking grumpy. at me. I woke up and I was really, I was in a disarray. Okay. Okay. This is John's, this is John's Tony Soprano moment, okay? Do you remember Tony Soprano? Tony Soprano the podcast on my head. Tony Sprano would sit down with his shrink. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. And he'd have all these mad dreams. John's mad dream is he's driving around France in a Simca. That was the name of the bubble car. That was the, it was a French-made bubble car uh, with Yevgeny Prigozhin sitting yeah. beside him with a shotgun. Riding shotgun beside him. I'm going to have to, you know, push him over to change the gear. Right, okay. If we have any... Anyway. If we have any Freudian dream weavers out there, by all means, please... <laughs> Drop us a line on Twitter. He's in my and, head. He's and in my explain head. what John's French dream. Okay, well, I wasn't intending to start with your French dream. So you're driving down the Bay of Biscay somewhere, okay? And Prigozhin and yourself are in a Simca. That beats anything Tony Soprano yeah. could ever, ever. You're the Tony Soprano podcast, and that's your. Anyway, we're going anyway, to talk about things anyway, French. Anyway, I'm going to, I want to start this podcast in July of 1914. Okay. 
three days before the outbreak of the First World War. I feel I need music to bring us back. And we're in France, right? In France. Okay. And it's the trial of a woman who's charged with murdering the editor of The Figaro, ah. a conservative newspaper. Not only was she charged with murder, she actually was, she got off, but the, the story is brilliant, right? So it goes back to a thing with the French called the Affaire Callot, C-A-I-L-L-A-U-X. Now, Monsieur Callot was the French finance minister, mm-hmm. right? And he was a devil for having affairs, okay? <laughs> yeah. Particularly with married women, right? right. Now, he, he had an affair with this woman. He then married her, right? This was the year 1913, but he got bored with her by 1914, right. and he had an affair with another woman, right? right? And that other woman... It's all very French. It's so all very, far. very French. But that other woman, that other married woman, right? Yeah. Began to get anxious because Callow tried to increase income tax in 1914, and he was a radical politician, which meant he was mm. on the left. Mm. And the conservative newspaper, The Figaro, decided to fight him, not on the area of economics, but by leaking stories about his many ah, mistresses. Right. So the new mistress, whose name was Henrietta Clarité, she decided that the only way she could preserve her integrity and... That was already prevent, gone at this stage, and, surely. And, no, but and prevent the newspaper leaking about her other affairs, oh, right? I see, yeah, yeah. Was by shooting the editor. So she okay. bought a gun, she blew his head off, right? Be radical. And the reason this is all interesting is Callow's right-hand man was a guy called Emile Moreau. And Emile Moreau went on to be the governor of the Bank of France, right? Okay. And Emile Moreau and Callow were both educated at these technocratic universities in France called the Sciences Po right, mm. which is the Institute of Science and Politics. And they were set up after the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, which the French lost. And in reaction to that loss, they said, we need to get our state centralised, producing munitions for the War of Revenge, which they called the First World War, against ah, Germans, right? Okay, okay. And Morrow was at the centre of He was the banker at the centre of this. He was a finance guy at the centre of this. But two days after the trial, what the French started to see was gold coins started to disappear from France. Now, the reason this happened is that the French have always had this obsession in times of trouble with gold. They Mm. actually ended up being the biggest single holder of gold. And why was this? Because do you remember our friend, the South Sea Bubble? Remember we talked about, right? Two things. One was the French Revolution was financed by, remember we were talking about Talleyrand yeah, and his assignats, yeah. yeah. which were paper money, which destroyed the middle class in France because they all bought these assignats and they inflated them away. And prior to that, John Law and the Mississippi bubble, do you remember that one? Yeah, I that remember that too. enslaved... In, in, I have my notes here. Yeah, <laughs> you and Prigozhin. <laughs> you and you have gaining discussion. So they've always had this weakness for going to gold when there's a crisis. Right, okay. And deep in this is the French technocratic obsession with stability at all costs, right? So what they always do in France and what they always did up until till the Euro was always vouch for austerity, the Bank of France, for austerity-type mm. policies because they are obsessed with, and they were and they've always been obsessed with preserving the stability of the state. And this comes from the fact that all the higher anarchs, the higher functionaries, the higher civil servants 
are all from this Seance Poe thing. Mm. And Moreau was one of them. Now, Moreau was the head of the French Central Bank in the 1920s, when they react, and the 30s, when they react to the Great Depression by raising interest rates and buying gold rather than cutting interest rates mm. and actually expanding the money supply. Jean-Claude Trichet, previous French head of the Central Bank of Europe, yeah. ECB, raised interest rates in 2011 in the face of a crisis. And always in France, you have these insiders who look after their, themselves and threaten the outsiders. And that's, John, where we're going to start today. That's really interesting. So was that the kind of thinking behind the development of the euro and the idea of the European Central well, Bank? now it's fascinating because you, we started the Franco-Prussian War, mm. right? If you look at the last 150 years history between France and Germany, it has been spectacularly violent mm. prior, yeah, to, the, yeah, prior yeah. to the European Union. What you have is you have a consistent thread to French economic thinking mainly coming from the Bank of France, mm. which is extreme monetarism. You also have a jealousy and a rivalry with Germany, not with Britain, but with Germany. Right. And the Euro idea came from the fact that when the Berlin Wall collapsed, the Germans decided we're going to go for unification. The French said, no, you're not. Mm. The Brits said, no, you're not. The Brits, of course, did the stupid British things. They never extracted anything from the Germans. Right? If you think yeah. about it, the British did their usual daily target of, oh my God, fight them on the beaches sort of stuff, right? Yeah. But they didn't extract a deal. The French are much more crafty. And they said to the Germans, look, you can have the unification, but we want your currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the Germans yeah. said, what? Is it, you see that Deutschmark? You can't have that anymore. We're going to take it over. We're going to Francify the Deutschmark and create this thing called the Euro. Yeah. And we're going to control it. And has there ever been a German boss of the ECB? No. Really? Have there been two French bosses in the last 10 years? Really? Yes. That, ah, now, so okay, think about it. That, so, that makes sense. So you had Trichet, mm. French boss, and you're one now, Lagarde, yeah. right? So that the French have done is they've managed to That's curious. infiltrate right. yeah. European monetary system with their own people and elbow out the Germans, which goes back to what Andrea was saying last week, that there's a lot of Germans kind of upset about the status quo because they realise that they're paying the bill Mm. But they're not getting the top jobs. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. RTE. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> now, hang on a second. <laughs> so that's the that's what we're going to frame it, right? Right. So Excellent. It's against that background that we discuss France. Mm. Insiders, the outsiders, the technologists, the Bank of France, the obsession with austerity, all that sort of stuff. And why don't we go to Marseille this time? And we're going to talk to Shaheen Vallée, who was the economic advisor of Emmanuel Macron. So a fellow who knows what the thinking is at the top. So let's go to Marseille. Glass of rosé. <laughs> now, we are on the eve of Bastille Day, the day in which the French commemorate and celebrate the revolution, the French Revolution, and all things that goes from that. Many would argue probably the most, or possibly the most consequential event of the last 250 years in European politics in terms of shaping the way we see the world. But... As we know, France is in a little bit of turmoil. And as part of our European tour, we're now going to go to France and we're going to talk to a man who was the economic advisor to Emmanuel Macron. But Shaheen Vallée is probably at the epicentre of European policymaking, was Macron's economic advisor, wrote a fantastic piece in the Financial Times just this week about 
the French police, the French cops. We're going to kick off there with the riots. And then we're going to ask that question as we asked in Germany last week, which is who really runs, who really runs France? So Shaheen, welcome and lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you for your invitation. Not at all. Now, tell me, you wrote in the in the FT last week that the French police force is the problem or is a significant part of the problem, the rights. Explain to me what, what, what your thinking was. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, I mean, how the events of the last uh, couple of weeks have really polarized French society. You have some people on one part of the spectrum who believe that we have a real problem with policing and that the killing of this young man, the 17-year-old kid, is just you know a flashpoint of that deeper institutional problem with policing. And that you know the serious riots that we've had in this country were all and every time the result of police brutality. And so you know, I you know, I'm part of these people who believe that we have you know a serious problem with the police and that we need to address it, and that many countries in Europe have had similar problems with the police and have addressed it. That's the case of Germany, that's the case of the UK, where you have now much less violent police and as a result, much less homicides by the police. Just you know, to, to state some numbers. The French police was killing roughly 10 people a year in 2010. It is now killing between 40 and 50 people a year. Wow. Uh, wow. And Germany, which is a country that is a population that is you know, 20% bigger than France, Germany's police was killing 10 people a year in 2010. And it's still killing, you know, today in 2023, about 10 people a year. So, you know, that says something both about the cross-country differences, but also about how, you know, things have evolved over the last decade or so, and how a number of laws in France have basically, you know, contributed to empower and create a lack of accountability on the part of the police. And I believe that's a big part of the problem. Now you have another part of the French population, which really focuses on the riots and what has happened since, and who says, well, you know, actually the killing is just an excuse, the deeper problem are the profound social tensions at the heart of this country and that manifest with these riots. And these social tensions, according to these people, are in large part due to immigration, crime, and a lack of ability of the authority of the state to basically discipline these uh, parts of society. I happen to disagree with that, but I have to confess that I think that feeling now is a majority of the French public opinion. And I think these riots... I've had a very profound and, and I fear lasting effect on, on French society and on French politics in the sense that I think it is creating a feeling of unity in the country around and against a part of the population, which happens to be the, you know, racial the minorities and, reli- and religious minorities of the country. And I fear terribly that this is basically fueling a far right sentiment and, and making Le Pen's accession to power far easier than it would have been otherwise. Well, I, I want to talk to you about the prospect of President Le Pen, because it's it's a very real prospect now. Macron is out of the race. He can't go again. He's been there twice. He's a formidable operator. We'll talk about him, but he's out now. And Le Pen is a formidable operator in her own way. And something like this emboldens her, gives her legitimacy. All that. Sort of, I want to ask you is what France would look like under a Le Pen presidency. But I want to come back to you on the psychological impact of the riots before we go deeper on the economy. So... Do you think that the riots now give a sense of respectability to the right? And do you think, even despite your own politics, that that's kind of maybe understandable? I don't think it gives them a sense of respectability, but I I think it is creating a fear in the French public 
that the situation is out of control and that the only people who haven't been in power, you know, may be given or should be given a chance to try and put this under control. I'm not particularly sure that people believe that the Front National and Marine Le Pen have a response, but they know that, you know, they haven't been tested yet. And so I think what has happened with this riot and, you know, more, more profoundly in the country over the last, you know, couple of uh, electoral cycles is that Le Pen has done two very important things that I think has helped her gain respectability. One is that she has more or less abandoned this anti-Euro, anti-Europe discourse, which I think was scaring the majority of the French public. I mean, nobody in France, especially after what has happened in Greece and what has happened in Italy, believes that we can leave the Euro and that we would be better off doing that. And so I think our flip-flopping on the euro for a long time was a tremendous liability. And she got rid of that in the 2022 election. And I think that has helped our respectability tremendously. The second thing is I think she's tried to tame her most obviously racist and authoritarian bent. And she was greatly helped in that by having somebody to her right in the person of, uh, of Eric Zemmour, who was running in 2022. Yes, yes, this who, sort of kind of comedian com- commentator who kind of deposited it in and it was actually was actually quite a threat for quite some time to look yeah, at. So in the very beginning of the race, he was a real threat because he appeared more committed, more extreme than her. Yeah. Uh, and so I think she was really troubled by that. But it eventually helped her because it, it helped normalize her. So basically, Seymour took her ideas to a new extreme. And as a result, she appeared like a more reasonable person and a more reasonable person who, you know, a traditional right wing voter could say, well, you know, she's kind of normalized on the euro and she's actually not as openly racist as Seymour. So she's actually somebody that I could vote for. So I think the respectability of the far right and the sort of you know tacit union between you know a portion of the right and the far right has taken place already and is sort of crystallizing now with these riots so she's kind of morphing into like a 21st century de gaulle almost like a sort of a, a right wing french patriot who stands for all good french things which means christianity white france all those things that de gaulle stood for and a slightly and of course, people said, well, what, about, what, what do you do in Algeria? Oh, forget about that. We can, we can, we can figure. So she is morphing into the, the standard bearer of the right, the center right. And these riots have solidified that position. Yeah. OK, now let's talk about maybe what that presidency might look like at the end before we go. But let's talk about France itself, right? I've always, and we said it in the, the top of the last discussion we had in Germany, right? Because we speak English in Ireland, we tend to be the recipients of incessant English propaganda against continentals. So the Germans mm-hmm. are all caricatures. And in the English press, the French are all caricatures. It's a caricaturization of an entire nation. And one of those things is the French are lazy and they don't work very hard. Now, I was an economist at BNP many, many years ago as a French economist, so I wouldn't share that view. So park that sort of almost trope, cliched view of France. And explain to me, how come France remains the fifth largest economy in the world? How come it remains incredibly wealthy? What makes it all tick? Well, you know, I I think these caricature that that you refer to, you know, are are really missing the point. I think the French economy is a very vibrant economy. It's actually, you know, healthier than many other European economies, including the British and including the, the, the German one. It is a lot more diversified. It has, you know, a fairly strong industrial base, even though it has weakened over the years, but it has a very strong service industry. 
It has made very bold bets, which I think are paying off. One is a big bet on global luxury. The other is a big bet on finance, which, you know, I think for a long time looked like it was not paying off. But in fact, we had some of the largest European and global banks. I think that contributed quite tremendously to French GDP. And we have a fairly decent employment level, which is actually rising. And I think Macron's played a meaningful role in that, mostly through apprenticeship. So I think on the end, we have probably a smaller demographic challenge than most of other European nations. So on the whole, I think it's an economy that if it was not for its bad politics could thrive. I think it is held back by some deeply rooted problems in French politics. One is an extreme level of centralization. And by centralization, I mean both geographical and political. So, you know, unlike Germany, we don't have, you know, 10 cities that are driving yeah. the economy. We essentially have one, which is Paris and its surrounding. And that creates a real polarization of resources, which I think is creating real economic, political, and social problems in the rest of the country. And I think these social problems really emerged or exploded rather during the Gilets Jaunes movement. I think, you know, people want to see the Gilets Jaunes movement as a fight against the carbon tax. I think that's a very narrow understanding of what the Gilets Jaunes movement was. I think the Gilets Jaunes movement was more profoundly a revolt of the periphery against the core and the core being Paris, but more importantly, the French elite, both, both economic and political. So, you know, if it was not for these... Uh, political challenges, which when elected in 2017, Macron had promised to address, I think France would be in a, in, in a great economic and political position. Sadly, I think we're held back by these forces and by, I think, a, a ruling elite. And by that, I mean, you know, both the economic and the political elite, which has, you know, too much comfort in the current organization of the system, doesn't want to decentralize power, doesn't want to lose grip over economic and political power. And I think as a result, is holding back the country. I think we would benefit tremendously from a much more decentralized organization, decentralized or deconcentrated when it comes to economics. You know, I think we would benefit tremendously from having more firms rather than, you know, a country that is driven by, you know, three or four global firms that are basically calling the shots on every policy and political decision. I want to come back to the elite, but let's talk about the luxury, because I don't think many people appreciate this, right? That, you know, luxury brands, the LVMHs of this world, the Bernard Arnaud's, right? This makes France an unbelievably fascinating sort of, it kind of gets into people's heads, you know, brand France. Yeah. So last week we were talking about Germany. The Germans... They heat things up and they make things, right? Yeah. But France is a certainly much more different. It's arguably a more sophisticated economy because you're, you're an economy that, that resides in people's imaginations in a way. No, and I think Bernard Arnault is, is heavily criticized in France. But to be fair, I think he's a, he's a marketing genius and has contributed greatly to build the brand France. He benefits also tremendously from, from, yeah, from the he's brand. He's the richest man in the world, so he benefits, obviously. But, but he's also contributing to, you know, creating that imagination. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we probably owe a significant share of French tourism to the myth and imagination that LVMH is, is creating globally. Yeah, no, okay, so let's talk about the elite. Okay, so I was really intrigued many years ago. I, I studied in Belgium and I did a master's there with many French students and a lot of them went on. They came from this Sciences Po sort of ANARC mm -hmm. tradition and many of them went on into the French Ministry of Finance and the Quai mm -hmm. d'Orsay and all that sort of stuff, right? Explain to me the power struggle in France between these technocratic elites that we spoke about and these are the people I studied with the industrial elite and the people, the gilets jaunes, if you will. 
So there isn't so much of a struggle between the political administrative elite and the business elite in the sense that these are one and the same people. And by the way, you know, I come from Sciences Po as well, so, you know, I... Fess you know, up, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I talked earlier to John about the Sciences Po, but explain to me exactly what it is. So basically, Sciences Po is a political science school which prepares basically the French elite to then go to another school, which is called the École Nationale d'Administration, which is, you know, in English would be a master's of public affairs or something of that nature. But, you know, imagine a very small class of, you know, 50 individuals a year, which basically after having gone through the school is basically given kind of a right to govern for life. And that right to govern can be exercised in the public sector or in the private sector or in the quasi-public sector, which is the number of French companies that are nominally private, but are in fact run by people who are coming from, from that. Yeah, school. Like, like, like BNP when I worked for it. Like BNP was a, no, a notionally private bank, but it was very clear to me when I worked there, it was an arm of the French state. I mean, uh, not so much an arm yes. of the French state, but they were very, very proximate in the way in which it wouldn't yeah. be the case in other countries. Yeah, so there's strong social networks. And I think these strong social networks create an important symbiotic relationship between basically top businesses and, and the French administrative and political elite. I think where it creates a problem is that it basically puts these companies in a much privileged situation and makes competition a lot more difficult and the emergence of competitors that can challenge the powers of the incumbent a lot more difficult. So I think, to me, the struggle is here. And what you've expressed and asked about, which is the Gilles movement, I think some of it is that frustration. Basically, the people at the periphery and those who are the most marginalized being the people who were basically on, on the roundabouts during the Gilles movement, feel that collusion is working against them. And it's a collusion that is, you know, also geographical in the sense that these people basically govern from Paris and basically treat the provinces not in the best way. So it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of a classic, as you'd say in English, kind of an insiders-outsiders situation, where the insiders yes. are constantly reinforcing their position, the outsiders are getting marginalized, the outsiders are paying for the failures of the insiders. You know, it's funny we're talking about Bastille Day. If you look back, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't predict revolution, but if you look back at the Third Estate and then the cardinals and the royalty, I mean, it's not dissimilar in a historical context. I mean, you can't overemphasize it, but it's quite interesting. No, no, but every country reproduces a form of oligarchic operation, even under the guise of a perfectly well-functioning democracy. And, you know, France has that to some extent, but, you know, I'm sure Ireland does too, and clearly, absolutely, UK, absolutely. And clearly the UK has it too. So I think I don't want to sound naive about making it feel like this is something unique to France. What is unique to France and is, is the shape and form it takes. But the idea that elites seek to accumulate and preserve power outside of the structures of, of the democratic functioning of the country is something that is quite standard and, and, and not very surprising. And then, of course, you drop into this, the misfortunate migrants, because what you have is a, is a battle with for the heart and soul of France. And you drop into this a migrant population that is disenfranchised. If you look at, I mean, I think it's Arab kids are eight times more likely to be stopped by the cops and black kids are seven times more likely to stop the cops than white kids. So, I mean, you, you put that racial thing in and, and you have massive tensions. Yeah, I think these tensions also have an historical root. These migrants are here because France was there, right? Good, fair point. There is a colonial history. There is a history of importing migrant workers when we needed them. And so, you know, I think it's, you know, while I can understand like a country like Poland who, you know, finds migration something completely foreign to them. An alien, yeah. For France, it shouldn't, you know. I mean, the reality is that 
We didn't discover migration five years or 10 years ago with the Syrian crisis or with the wave of demographic changes affecting Africa. You know, we've discovered migration. As soon as France went to Africa. Yeah, and as soon as France went to India. With slavery, with colonization, with decolonization and imported labor. So, you know, this is part of our history. And sadly, I think, what, you know, what's missing to our national sort of founding myth is to include that history as part of our you know, founding myth. And we've, we've still struggled to do that. And as a result, we struggle to build an inclusive multicultural society because we want to be defined as a society that does not discuss and that does not recognize race and religion. You know, we only want to consider citizens, which is in principle a good idea, I would say, but it can backfire if it leads you to ignore what are the challenges that a multicultural society has to face? What are the challenges of a society that has to face its history? And I think the danger of, of France's views of universalism or laïcité is that it pushes us to ignore and to accept the fact that you can be French and Muslim, French and Malian, you know, something that, you yeah. know, in my experience living in London for a long time is, is very possible. I mean, you know, I think people can define themselves as, as Nigerian and, and, and British. But doing that in, in the French context is a lot more challenging. But not Nigerian and English, which is the interesting thing. British is, British is a very good flag of convenience for England because you can yeah. be Jamaican and British, as most Jamaicans feel. They really, really feel that, yeah. you know. But let's come back. So France requires you to be secular, to be a citizen of France, to be denuded of ethnicity, you are actually loyal to the French state. Now, for many Europeans, that and we, we go back to the Bastille Day, that looked like an amazingly brilliant way of dealing with different cultures. And for many, many mm -hmm. years, it probably was. But what you're mm -hmm. saying is now, it doesn't work so well. And the prospect of a president, Le Pen, is made even closer from the fact that France requires everyone to be the same. And if you're not the same, you stand out. And if you stand out, then you're a target. Yeah, no, I, I think on paper, you know, France's notion of citizenship and, you know, rooted in universalism is brilliant. You know, this is what I was taught at school and, and I came to believe in it. But I, I think it's ill-suited to a society that is as diverse as France is today, with people, uh, you know, having a longing for a sense of, of identity lost that I think France must accept and recognize. And I think... We'd be much better off if we accepted France's uh, multicultural roots and allowed people to live with them. Yeah. And to some extent, Macron's promise, which I, I'm going back to him, Macron's promise when he was elected in 2017 was that, you know, he had fought against a very controversial law that uh, Hollande had tried to pass, which failed after the terrible terrorist attack of 2015. You know, basically, Hollande had proposed to rescind the French citizenship to dual citizens who would be convicted. And this had created a big trauma because it basically meant that dual citizens were not true French citizens. Yeah. And Macron had opposed that. And he made a very big and important speech during his campaign in 2017 in Marseille, where I'm, I'm actually speaking to you from today where he, he appealed to that multicultural identity, which is very deeply rooted in a city like Marseille, where you have yeah. people, you know, it's a port city. It's, it's an extraordinary city. It's a city where people come from all of, you know, North Africa and all of, and all of Europe. And during that speech, he did something which is very unusual for a French candidate. He said, who in the audience is coming from Mali and who is coming from Senegal and who is coming from Algeria? 
And in doing that, he kind of recognized that you could be both, you know, French from Marseille and Algerian and claim all of these identities together. And in doing that, to me, he basically allowed the beginning of a new definition of French citizenship and French multicultural identity to emerge. But that was, you know, pre-2017, pre-his victory. Yeah. And after that, when he was elected, he came back to the old French mold of basically, no, no, you can only be French and I don't want to see your color skin. I don't want to see your religion, even if, you know, by not wanting to see it, I end up ignoring and maybe deliberately ignoring the discriminations that you may suffer from. So let's conclude this discussion in Marseille. I was at Le Pen's final rally in Marseille, making a documentary about France in 2016. And she kept coming back to this idea, say, on a chez nous, right? They are mm -hmm. over in our place. And she was mm -hmm. basically talking about Africans and North Africans and Muslims and whatever. And it was in the uh, the Hippodrome in Marseille. And it was a particularly unusual crowd, to say the least, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there was a kind of an understanding that she may well get to the second round, but she's going to lose. What does Europe look like? Because I know you're very involved in Europeans. Mm -hmm. What does Europe look like under President Le Pen? So to me, what's interesting is that Le Pen is not an isolated case, not at all. In fact, you know, these changes that I've described of Le Pen have taken place in other countries in Europe. They've taken place in Italy. They're taking place to, less, to a lesser extent in, in Spain. You know, we'll see what the election outcome in Spain in, in, in July looks like. But, you know, we basically have the beginning of a, of a coalition between the, the PP in Spain and Vox. We clearly have a coalition in Italy between Fratelli d'Italia, the really far right of Italy, with Forza d'Italia, which is sort of the center right. We've seen that in a number of countries. So, you know, Le Pen's trajectory to some extent, and what I've described earlier about this collusion taking shape between the right and the far right in France is not unique. And what I worry about is that I think we have a lurch across Europe that is basically pulling the right and the far right together. It might actually, you know, formalize itself and crystallize during the next European elections uh, in June 2024, where you have more and more chances that basically the EPP, the centre-right, the sort of Christian Democrat, Christian Democratic Parties of Europe, will need the ECR group, the far-right yeah, group, far -right group yeah. to, to basically continue to run the European Parliament. So I view uh, what may happen in France in 2027 as sort of the continuation of what is already taking place in a number of countries in Europe. That's the case in Finland. You know, we, so we have, I think, you know, a gradual, slow convergence between the right and the far right, which I find quite concerning. Maybe the only positive thing about this, if you want to see something bright in it. We, we always do. Irish people are optimistic by nature. So I think maybe the optimistic thing about this, which we were seeing in, in Italy, is that it is also contributing to sort of normalize the far right and basically Europeanize the far right. So Fratelli d'Italia and Meloni, had she come to power five years ago, would have been anti-Euro, would have been anti-Europe, would have tried to, you know, argue for leaving the EU. That has gone. And I, I can't, you know, tell myself whether this is a good or a bad thing, but like the far right, who was profoundly anti-European, has basically discovered that it could be European because there are not enough of them in Europe to basically reshape Europe in, in their own image. In particular, they are united around this vision of, a, of an identity of Europe rooted in whiteness and Christianism. And I think this is something that, you know, is uniting far-right forces in Europe 
contributing to giving them a real European project, essentially, you know, fighting Absolutely, yeah. the enemy, fighting the migrant, fighting the Muslim and uniting Europe around our Christian, our Christian values. Sometimes when they're generous, they talk about Judeo-Christian values, but really what they mean is Christian values. Shaheen, we will leave it there. I just, I'm just reminding that, you know, the idea of Europe is a very recent one. For over a thousand years, Europe was referred to as Christendom. That was the actual description, you know. So they're going back to this. And that's fascinating because, they, as you say, you can coalesce around a big, big idea that's kind of amorphous, historically linked, doesn't seem particularly threatening unless you're not white. And that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. That's where I go. Listen, fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Shane, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you know? It's interesting that Is Prigozhin's still in the car. <laughs> I dropped him off. You dropped him off. He's doing a bit of shopping. I'll pick him up later. in a place called Belarus. <laughs> Went a little detour in your Simca bubble car. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting what Shaheen was saying there that and what we were talking about in this whole European tour that you're on, you're swanning around. around. <laughs> but about the, you know, it's and the recurring theme is this rise of the right. Yes. And it's also interesting in what he was saying there towards the end about the impact of Brexit yeah. on on the rise of the right across Europe. Yeah, yeah. No, it is a fascinating thing. So the impact of Brexit, there's many, right? but one of the main impacts was the following, that the right wing in Italy and France were always anti-European. Mm. They're patriots first, sovereignty first, the Europeans yeah. are meddlers, right? Part of that was, we're going to go back to the lira and we're going to go back to the French franc. Yeah. So we're going to abandon the euro, right? Now, that was a sort of a kind of cost-free option for them because it was hypothetical. But then when the Brits left the EU, the EU punished the Brits and said, okay, you can leave, but you can't have any trade deals. Yeah. And that, of course, percolated into right-wing thinking in France. And they said, look, leaving the euro, this is part of the whole process of leaving the EU. The Brits couldn't do it. We can't do it. The yeah. Italians said the Brits couldn't do it. We can't do it. So it's amazing. European integrationists have a huge amount to thank 
the Brexiteers for. Because yeah, yeah, the Brexiteers yeah. thought, they thought that they would do Brexit and that would lead to the dissolution of the European Union, mm. right? They thought it would lead to a domino effect and people would go, right, what it's actually done is it's strengthened the European Union because the incipient risk to the European Union was from the right wing of Italy and, to a degree, Spain and definitely France, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now what Brexit has done is it's actually emasculated the right wing and made them more European. So they've dropped all that anti-European stuff. Mm. But, and here's the sort of blowback is, it has also meant that the right wing have seeped some of their ideas into the European Union. So they've actually, the tent has got bigger. The yeah. ideas within the tent have become more broad. And so what they're doing and now... Normalized as, and normalised. Exactly, as and normalised. So... So all the, the anti-immigration stuff, the anti-Muslim stuff, all that stuff now is becoming part of the background noise. Yeah. And as Shaheen said, and we'll probably conclude here, that it gives life to an ancient idea that Europe is white, Christian. And as I was saying to Shaheen, Europe used to be referred to as Christendom. Yeah. Right. And all of European politics was, you know, think about the Crusades. The Holy Roman Empire the Crusades, with Charlemagne yeah, and stuff. all that yeah, stuff. The yeah, Crusades yeah. is all about European culture dominating Arab culture. You know, the, the Saracens and all that sort of stuff. You know, the, 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 the entire Ferdinand and Isabel stuff in Columban times when they kicked out all the Jews and the Arabs out of Spain. All mm. the same idea. And this now gives Le Pen a new story. And Meloni, and arguably that story is even more scary, that we're all in this together as white Christian Europeans. That's something we haven't talked about for centuries. Mm. And they're talking about it now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.